If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 43. We've had the privilege this morning of gathering to worship the Lord in song and in observing his table and remembering, looking back, remember what he did, did for us, looking around, seeing what he's welcomed us into and looking forward with great anticipation to what he's going to do to bring an end to sin and death forever. And now we have the privilege of opening his word to us, the scriptures, and hearing from him. So we're going to hear from him by reading Genesis chapter 43 this morning. If you're new to New Branch, we've been walking through the book of Genesis for a few weeks now. Um, and we're in Genesis chapter 43. Um, and and this, the particular story that we're in the middle of is the story of Joseph that began in chapter 37 and will continue through the end of the book, through chapter 50. And so we're just going to look at this one little component. This, we're gonna, this was one little episode, um, and it, it, it seems to kind of happen out of nowhere. So let, let me set the stage for you. Let me, let me put this in perspective of where we are. Uh, Joseph, when he was 17 years old, he had a dream. It was a dream that his brothers would one day bow down to him. Even his mother and his father would bow down to him and that he would rule over them. And he didn't ask for this dream, but it was God foretelling him something that was going to happen in the future. It was God saying uh, something that was going to happen at one point he just didn't know when and he didn't know how. His brothers obviously didn't like this. They were jealous of him for this. And so they threw him in a pit. They threw him in a pit and then they sold him to slave traders who were on their way down to Egypt to do trade down there. And then the brothers go back to their father and they explain to their father what happened. Except they tell him a lie and they explain that something happened to Joseph. We're not sure, but here's his bloody coat he must have been killed by an animal. So Joseph assumes at this point, excuse me, Jacob, their father, assumes at this point that Joseph is dead. He's been killed by animals. Meanwhile, when the Ishmaelites get to Egypt, they sell Joseph to Potiphar, the captain of the guard. And under the employ of Potiphar, uh, Potiphar's wife takes a liking to Joseph, and Joseph seeks to resist that. And ultimately, Potiphar's wife accuses him falsely of raping her. And Joseph gets thrown into prison where he spends several years in captivity in prison. Providentially, God, uh, God has Pharaoh throw his chief cupbearer and his chief baker, two guys who, were, who served in Pharaoh's court, he throws them into prison. And providentially, they end up in the very same prison where Joseph is and presumably in his very same cell. And then God gives a couple of dreams to these two servants from Pharaoh's court and then gives Joseph the ability to interpret their dreams. And what he interprets of their dream actually comes true. Everything happens just as Joseph interprets. The chief baker is hanged for his offenses just as Joseph interpreted. The chief cupbearer cup gets restored to his service in Pharaoh's court just as uh, Joseph had interpreted. But Joseph himself remains in prison. Why? Because it is not yet time 
for his release. But in God's perfect timing, which happened to be two years later, God gives Pharaoh a couple of dreams. But there's nobody to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. But then and only then, two years after his release from prison, the cupbearer finally all of a sudden remembers what happened to him in his release from prison. He says there's this Hebrew in prison who knows how to interpret dreams, and he interpreted mine perfectly. And everything happened just as he interpreted. And so Pharaoh summons Joseph, and Joseph rightly interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And in so doing, he helps Egypt prepare for a great famine. And, and, and Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of everything. And he becomes the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And then as we saw last week in chapter 42, the story then shifts back to Canaan. What was happening to his family back in the land of promise? What was, what was happening there is the very same famine. The famine had reached the land of Canaan as well. And so food was scarce, and so Jacob, the father, sends his sons to Egypt to buy food from Egypt because now they had it because Joseph helped them store it up. But he doesn't send all of his sons. He keeps his favorite, Benjamin, his youngest, home with him. But he sends the rest of them to Egypt. And so the brothers come before Egypt. They don't recognize who Joseph is. His identity is hidden from them, but he recognizes his brothers. He knows who they are. And he accuses them of being spies, not because they are, but because he's testing them. And because he's trying to find out, is Benjamin still alive? Is Benjamin at home? So he throws them in prison and he tells them that if they will go back and bring their youngest brother back with them, then he will let them live, but he's going to keep one of them with him. And so he binds up Simeon and he holds Simeon hostage while he sends the rest of them back to Canaan. And so Joseph sends his brothers back to the land of Canaan after having given them plenty of food to take back with them. And also secretly putting the money that they had purchased the food with back into their sacks. So they get back to Canaan. They find this money in their sacks. And they're convinced that God is somehow punishing them for something. Because now they're going to be in trouble with the prince. Because now they've got the money. And so they tell their dad what had happened. And that now Simeon is also bound up. Not only has he lost Joseph, presumably... But now he's lost Simeon as well. And the only way to retrieve him is by going back to Egypt with Benjamin. And Jacob says, no way. No way. Benjamin's not going. So let's pick up the story right there because it follows right on from there in chapter 43. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain they had, brought, they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy a little food. But Judah said to them, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? 
What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other, your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. So the man took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The, men, the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks for the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them, and when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had, he had their donkeys, gave their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into, into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and came out, and controlling him, himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews 
for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for this book. And we know that these are not just words on a page, that they are your very breath. Inspired by your spirit, spoken through the human hands of authors that you inspired to give us these very words. And so we thank you for them. And we ask, Father, this morning that through your word that you would save sinners that you would make the timeless gospel apparent to those who are lost and hopeless without it. We pray this morning that you would sanctify the saints, Father, that you would edify and, and grow the faith of your children in this room. And God, most of all, that you'd glorify yourself in our hearts and in our lives, that you'd cause us to look more like your son Jesus so that you'd be glorified through our very lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as we did in the previous chapter, we can divide chapter 43 into sections according to the journey of the brothers. In chapters 1 through 14, they are in Canaan. And they're talking about the need to go back to Egypt, both to buy more food because the famine is severe and they've run out and they need more food, but also to secure the release of Simeon, who's being held captive there. And so the narrative in the first 14 verses takes place in Canaan. And then the remainder of the chapter, verses 15 through 34, takes place in Egypt as the brothers return once again to Joseph. This time they bring with them gifts and double the money. Half of the money is to pay them back for the money that was returned to them when they bought food the first time, and the other half was to buy more food this time. But this stay in Egypt is very much different than the last one. In the last stay in Egypt in chapter 42, they were accused of being spies, and they were thrown in prison, and one of them was kept in prison, held hostage. But this time... They are treated as royal guests, and they feast in Joseph's own home. Now, we are admittedly just kind of truncating, even ending the story there at the end of chapter 43, ending our reading there, kind of truncates the story, because the story really goes on, but it's too much for us to cover in one setting. So we're going to leave that stuff for next week. In chapter 44, and we're actually going to get into chapter 45 next week as well. But I want us to look at chapter 43 in particular, and and there are three observations that I want us to make. Hopefully you were paying attention as we were reading through this. It's a a story. It's It's a narrative of what was happening, and hopefully you were following along. But what I want to do this morning is not to go back through the story, but to make three observations from this narrative. And from those observations... Take three uh, lessons, three takeaways from each of those observations that we can learn this morning. 
The first observation is for us to notice the prefiguring of Christ that we see in chapter 43. To see the the foreshadowing of a redeemer. The pointing forward to, to one who would come and do away with sin and death forever. In the story of Joseph, all throughout these latter chapters of the book of Genesis, two characters emerge that take on some of the characteristics of Christ. Characters that point forward to our Redeemer. The first of those is Joseph himself. We've already noted that Joseph is a type of Christ um, in this part of the book of Genesis. Um, He's a character that points forward to one who would be our Redeemer. Uh, After all, it is Joseph who is betrayed by those who are closest to him, as Jesus was by one of his own disciples. It is Joseph who is subjected to great suffering as a means of rescuing God's children, just as Jesus suffered on the cross in order to rescue us. But even in this chapter, we see a prefiguring of Christ in Joseph. In verse 26, all of his brothers, when they see Joseph, they bow down to him. They they, they bow down to Joseph, foreshadowing that one day every knee will bow before Christ our Lord. But then in verses 29 and 30, in this scene where Joseph sees his younger brother Benjamin, we have this tender scene of of them being reunited. and, And we're told that Joseph hurried out of the room for his compassion grew warm. For his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. And the compassion of Joseph reminds us of the compassion of Jesus for us, his children. Sinners who deserve to be put to death for our sin and yet were dealt with graciously and according to his compassion and mercy. The topology of Joseph as a prefiguring in Christ in the book of Genesis is a, is a well-established opinion by most, if not all, of the respected scholars, at least the ones that I use in uh, studying the book of Genesis. But in chapter 43, another character emerges as a foreshadowing of Christ, and that is his older brother, Judah. In the first 14 verses, their father, Jacob, tells the sons to go back to Egypt to buy more food. We're out of food. We're going to die from this famine that is severe in the land, and so go buy more food. And Judah stands up at this point, presumably taking the position of leader of the brothers, and he says, we can't, not unless Benjamin goes with us. The prince of Egypt made it very, very clear to us that if we go back and we don't have him with us, then we will die, and so will Simeon, who's in captivity. And so we can't do that. To which Jacob balks and he complains and he says, well, why'd you tell him I had another son anyway? I mean, it's your fault. Why'd you tell him you had a brother? And then the brothers together say, how could we have possibly have known that he was going to say, bring your youngest brother to me? But then Judah, in verses 8 through 10, basically asks his father Jacob to trust him and send Benjamin with him. Look look at what he says in verses 8 through 10. And Judah said to Israel, his father, 
Send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. So essentially Judah is saying, Dad, put the burden on me. Put the burden on me, Father. Give Benjamin to me and I will make sure that our family is delivered, is rescued from this famine, the devastation of this famine. Then he continues in verse 9. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So he says, I will be a pledge of his safety. The NIV translates that phrase, I myself will guarantee his safety. The King James puts it, I will be surety for him. What's at play here is a Hebrew word. It's, it's a verb, and it's normally used in the marketplace when a, when a deal was struck or when a product or a service was ordered. The one who ordered the product would, would put something down as collateral or as a, as a deposit, as a pledge. And that pledge, that collateral, would be sacrificed if they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. If you've ever rented a tool from Home Depot, you know what I mean. Let's say you rent a tiller for your garden. Well, Home Depot is going to require you to put a deposit, a security deposit, down on that garden tiller. And in the case that you don't return that garden tiller, or you've returned it and it's damaged in some way... Well, then you sacrifice that security deposit. You don't get it back. They get to keep that. So in this case, Judah says to his father, send Benjamin with me, and I promise that I will bring him back safely. But if I don't, I'll be the pledge of his safety. I'll be the collateral. I will be the security deposit. And if I don't bring him back, then you can take that price out of me. Now, we don't know what price Jacob would have put on Benjamin's life had he not come back. We don't know what price he would have required of Judah. Maybe it would have been a, a, a year's worth of free labor, or maybe it would have been his very life. But whatever it was, Judah was offering himself as a sacrifice in order to save both Benjamin and his entire family. We saw that, right? That, that, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Commentator Bruce Waltke writes this. Judah is the first person in Scripture who willingly offers his own life for another. His self-sacrificing love for his brother for the sake of his father prefigures the vicarious atonement of Christ who by his voluntary sufferings heals the breach between God and human beings. Judah as a type of Christ is something that we'll see in the very next chapter as well. As Joseph, his identity as their brother still being hidden from them, attempts to keep Benjamin from returning to their father. And Judah again, Judah steps in once more and says, I will stay in his place. Typology like this in Scripture, particularly that of prefiguring the coming Christ of, uh, as we see that foreshadowed in Old Testament characters, is something that is not an exact science. 
In fact, some would argue that the human authors that God used to, to write the canonical books that we have in the, in the Bible many times aren't even aware that these are types. And I think that's the case here with Moses in, as he writes Genesis. Moses is simply writing an historical account of what's happening in the life of Joseph. That's what he's doing. He's not trying to set the stage for a redeemer. And yet we have these characters that sure seem to point to Christ, point to the Redeemer. Some of them clear and obvious, like Joseph. Some of them less clear and less obvious, like Judah. But we must ask, why are they here? Why are they here? And the reason why they're here is to remind us of the why of this whole story. So remind us of, of, of why. Why Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. Why he was thrown into a pit. Why he was sold to slave traders. Why he served as a slave and then was thrown in prison. And why, by God's providence, he rose to second in command, the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. The why of this whole story is not so that we would learn how to just hang in there when things get tough until our ship comes in. The why of this whole story also is is not just about reconciling estranged family members or even taking a family and turning it into a nation. The why of this whole story is simply this. There is a problem and God is fixing it. That's the why. There is a problem And God is fixing it. See, all this goes back to the beginning. After the fall, after Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent in the garden, and they rebelled against God, they sinned against God, they broke the one command that God had given to them, then God curses both Adam and Eve and the serpent himself. To Adam and Eve, the curse was to be expelled from the garden to be expelled from God's presence with no hope of ever coming back into God's presence, ever, and ultimately to die apart from Him. And the Bible says that we're all born into this same hopeless predicament, that we are sinners who deserve judgment because of our rebellion against a king, and we can never earn our way back to Him. That's the problem, and it's a problem for everyone in this room, myself included. It's, an, it's a problem for every single one of us because we are, all of us, sinners who deserve judgment. But even from the very beginning, God has given us hope of fixing that problem. And we see the hope of God's fix for our sin problem in what he said to the serpent as he's casting out judgments, as he's casting out his curses to Adam and Eve, he also curses the serpent. And he says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity, conflict, warfare, striving. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He, speaking of her offspring... He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We've returned to this many times before. It's, scholars call it the proto-euangelion, the, 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 
the pre-gospel, the gospel before there was a gospel, the gospel announcing the gospel, the curse to the serpent was that there would come one from the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would strike his heel, but he, this one who would come from the seed of the woman, would crush the serpent's head. And this crushing of the serpent's head is symbolic of the defeat of sin and death forever. The curse that we're all under would be broken by this one. And this one who would come from the seed of the woman, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. The serpent bruised his heel at the crucifixion at Calvary when he was nailed to the cross. But he, Jesus, crushed the serpent's head when not only did he die in our place on the cross, but he rose three days later proving that he had defeated sin and death. So our problem is sin, and this problem is universally prevalent, and it is eternally hopeless. But God was promising from the very beginning a rescuer, a redeemer. And so, friend, when we see Jesus Christ being pointed to in passages of Scripture like this, Passages and characters and, and sometimes even stories that, that point us to the cross. We see it over and over again, do we not? That, 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 that foreshadow, that, that give us a, a, a shadow of what is to come. It's not a perfect picture, but, but it's a shadow pointing of what's to come. That, that, that a Redeemer is coming. When, when we see these things in Scripture, it's a reminder to us of what's going on. That God is working out his plan to redeem sinners like you and I. So much more than working in the life of Joseph and working in the life of his brothers and working in the life of Jacob and Israel in the family. He is working out his plan to redeem sinners like you and I. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you realize that you're a sinner, a sinner who deserves judgment, because of your rebellion against God. Be reminded when you see the likes of Judah in a story like this, the likes of Joseph and some of the things that are happening in him, be reminded when you see them that it's pointing to the fact that God has sent his son and freely offered him on the cross of Calvary to be put to death as a sacrifice to rescue sinners like you and I. If you recognize that this morning, will you turn Will you come to him in faith? Will you turn away from your sin and self-rule and turn to Christ and his rule over you? Will you by faith trust that Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient to pay for your sins and restore you to a right relationship with the God who made you for his own glory and loves you deeply? This prefiguring of Christ in the story of Joseph, when we see that, I want us to hear that as the whisper of God saying to us, I'm fixing the problem. I'm fixing everything. Just wait. Just wait. That's our first observation. Second observation is to notice uh, Jacob's faith and Jacob's prayer in this passage. Look at the words of Jacob, the patriarch, beginning in verse 11. Moses writes, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your 
bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Now, note first that Jacob is referred to as Israel here. Jacob is Israel. Remember that he got that name after wrestling with God all night on the banks of the Jabbok River back in chapter 32. And Jacob learned a very important lesson there, that when you strive with God, you're probably going to walk away with a limp. Remember the story, right? He strove with God, wrestled with God all night. And then at the right moment, God just touched his hip and threw it out of joint. Up to this point in his life, Jacob had lived his life relying on his own craftiness and his trickery and his ability to deceive people around him in order to get what he wanted out of life. That's who Jacob was. But now, after wrestling with God, God brought him to the end of himself, where he could no longer rely on himself and his own ingenuity and trickery. Now he would see that what he really needed was the presence of God in his life. So from, this, from that point on, whenever Jacob is referred to in a positive light, trusting God, he's referred to as Israel. And when he's referred to in a negative light, and he's not trusting God, he's referred to as Jacob. Generally speaking, that doesn't happen all the time, but generally speaking, that's how Jacob is referred to throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. Even in the Psalms, when, when Jacob is referenced as a nation, they're called Jacob when they're not faithful, they're called Israel when they are. And so here he's referred to as Israel. The fa- their father Israel said to them, and then he goes on to essentially resign himself to the fact that this is just the way it is. In fact, that's what he says in the very next phrase, if it must be so. He's resigning himself to God's plan. This apparently is what God has in store. This is what providence holds for us. He tells them to take gifts with them, take double the money with them. But then he also tells them to take Benjamin. Look at verse 13. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. We need to understand here that Jacob offering his youngest son, his favorite, his last, was a huge step of faith for Jacob. Vaguely similar, I I think in his own mind perhaps even, vaguely similar to his grandfather Abraham offering his son Isaac, Jacob's dad, on the altar at Mount Moriah so many years earlier. It was a huge step of faith for him. Jacob was learning here what, what God is teaching all of us about as we go through the story of the life of Joseph. He's learning how to trust that God is sovereign, that he is in control no matter what's happening. And so trust him. He's in control. Jacob is trusting in providence as he hands Benjamin over to his other sons to go back to Egypt. He prays. Look at verse 14. He says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He trusts God because he knows that God is in control. God is sovereign, and yet 
He prays. And he asks God to grant mercy and make it so that Benjamin and Simeon will be able to come home to me. So don't miss that. Trusting in God's sovereignty does not mean that we don't pray to him. Praying to God and asking him to move and act is not a rejection of God's sovereignty. We've said it before that, that God ordains the ends, yes, but he also ordains the means that he uses to achieve those ends. And one of the means that God providentially chooses to use in order to accomplish his plans and his ways are the prayers of his people. And so Jacob is trusting in providence here, and so he prays to providence that God would be merciful and grant mercy to him and bring Simeon and Benjamin back to him. And then he admits that he has no authority over God, he has no hold on God, It just doesn't obligate God just because he asks him of this and that God is free to do as he pleases. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. What a a beautiful example of trusting prayer. Church, Jacob's prayer of trust here reminds us that As God's people, we must walk by faith, not by sight. Trusting in God's sovereignty that he's in control no matter what's happening around us. And and that part of how that trust in God is is lived out is by coming to him in trusting prayer. Asking him to move and act because we know that nothing is impossible for him. And so we pray for the impossible. We, we, we pray for a healing of cancer. We, we pray for the salvation of our loved ones. We pray that our children would be safe and secure. We pray for our nation that we be led by godly leaders who love righteousness. And so we ask him to move and act in certain ways, all the while expressing our trust in him as a sovereign God that his ways are best and not ours. And so we notice, first of all, the foreshadowing of Christ in this chapter and how that points to the why of this whole story, that God is redeeming sinners back to himself. That's the plan he's working out, his plan of redemption. But then here, secondly, we notice Jacob's faith and Jacob's prayer, and we're reminded likewise to walk by faith, trusting in God's sovereignty and expressing that faith through trusting prayer. The third observation that I want to close with is for us to notice that God is working on the brothers' consciences here. God is using circumstances to work on their heart. I want us to see that. Back in chapter 42, we saw this, that God was bringing discipline into the brothers' lives. God was disciplining them through, through things like a famine, through Jacob's harsh words and accusation of them being spies, uh, he, he was disciplining them through them being thrown in prison, through Simeon being bound, and even through the money showing back up in their sacks, that, that God was bringing discipline on them to lead them to repentance. 
In fact, he was disciplining them so much, though, and they felt this to such a degree that at one point they conclude aloud in verse 21 of chapter 42, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They don't know this is Joseph. But God uses the circumstances of life to bring such discipline and such heaviness to their hearts that they recognize God is, God is punishing us for something. Well, what have we done? And they realize, oh, that's right, we did that thing to Joseph. And, and so they, they say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. In other words, God was leading them to feel the weight of their mistreatment of Joseph and their sins in that regard so that they would repent. James Montgomery Boyce, who was uh, senior minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from the mid-60s to the year that he died, actually, in the year 2000, in uh, preaching the story of Genesis, the book of, um, story of Joseph, the book of Genesis, he notes that God uses six different means in this story uh, to work on the brothers' hearts. And I just want to mention them to you because they're so good and relevant. First of all, he uses the pinch of material need. That was the famine. There was no food. God, God, God used that to begin to work on the brothers' hearts. Something was foul in their heart. He began to use the pinch of material want and need. Then he used the pain of harsh treatment when Joseph accused them of being spies. Then he used the press of solitude when they spent time in jail. Then he used the proof of God's presence, which was when they found the money in the bag and they knew that, that, that God was doing this. They recognized God's presence in that. They, they said at that point, what is this that God has done to us? Now we're in big trouble. But in chapter 43, he adds two more, the pain of necessity and the power of affection. The pain of necessity was that it had become abundantly clear to both Jacob and to the brothers that this is the road that they must walk. If they're going to live, there's no food where they live. God had seen to that. The only food that was around was down in Egypt. And so they had to go there. And, the, and the, the, the prince of that land, who was Joseph, even though they didn't know that, had made it abundantly clear to them, don't you come back without Benjamin. Don't you come back without your youngest. You will die, and so will your brother Simeon, who's in bondage. And so they, they, they come to a realization that this is the road they must walk. This is something that's necessary. They, they, they need to do this. The power of necessity is essentially a realization that this is just the way things are and we need to walk through them. It's an acquiescence to providence. It's an acquiescence to God is sovereign and, 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 and this, he's in control of this and this is the path we must walk. And God uses the power of necessity to work on their hearts to get them to trust him. And I think we see signs that it is beginning to have an effect on them. It seems to be working on Judah, right? Judah looks a lot different in this chapter than he did back in chapter 38 when we saw him last. Back in chapter 38, he was someone who lived his life based on whatever he wanted. 
He saw something, he wanted it, and then he took it. And he would fulfill whatever desires he had in life. But now, what do we see of Judah? Now he's beginning to put the needs of others before himself. He's, he's, he's considering others more important than himself. He's exercising a willingness, apparently, to sacrifice himself for others in his family. We see God maturing Judah and Jacob and the brothers through this process, through necessity. This is what life requires of you right now. And so just take God by the hand and walk through it, trusting him every step of the way. And friend, the Lord does the same in our lives as well. He uses all of these means in our lives, including the power of necessity. Times where life requires more of us than we think we're capable of handling. And he says, just take my hand. I'm in control. Just trust me and don't let go. And in so doing, what we need to see here is that, is that God is providing us with those times to teach us about himself. That he's faithful and good and kind and gracious and merciful and trustworthy. So that we will learn to trust him more. And then finally, what Boyce refers to here as the, the power of affection is the, is the uncommon and perhaps even the untimely and misplaced even generosity and hospitality and graciousness of Joseph towards his brothers in this chapter. As we read here, he, he slaughters the animal. He makes a great feast. He invites them into his own home. We see the kindness and grace of Joseph all over the second half of this chapter. As his very own steward tells them, listen, we got paid. That money is from God. I, I don't know what that's about. I, I don't know if Joseph said, hey, I'll pay for him after they left. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe God multiplied. I don't know how that worked. But the steward said, we got paid. That money must have come from God. That was gracious on Joseph's part. He kills the animal. He sets up the feast. And, and we have this tender scene where, where the brothers are fed from Joseph's table. And Benjamin, the youngest, is given five times as much as anyone else. Graciousness, kindness, and it's all, all of it is undeserved. We're told that when they come before him and they go to his house, they're, they're afraid. What do they have to be afraid of? Especially after they fa find the fact that, that the money was returned and they had already gotten paid. They, they had done nothing wrong at that point. No, they were afraid because of their guilty consciences of what they had done to Joseph many years before. All of the kindnesses and, and affection and hospitality, generosity, graciousness of Joseph shown towards his brothers in this chapter serves to lead them to recognize how unworthy they are of Joseph's kindness and generosity. 
when he finally reveals his identity to them in the passage that we'll cover next week. The point of showing this to you in chapter 43 and, and going through Boyce's means that God uses to do heart work on the brothers is simply to remind us that God uses the very same means in our lives as well. To do heart work on us. He uses times of suffering. Times of want. Times of rejection. Times of solitude. Times of necessity. And displays of inordinate grace and mercy that almost seem out of place. To convict us of sin to perfect us in Christ, to mature us in our faith, and to conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so to the degree, friend, that you're experiencing some of these times in your life right now, can I be so bold as to say, praise God that He's still working on you? The promise of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6 is, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in, to, in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He began a good work in you when he gave you new life in him and caused you to be born again to what Peter calls a living hope. He began that good work and the promise is that that which he began, he will bring to completion. He'll finish it. And that's good news because that means that we're all works in progress this morning. He's not finished with us. He's still working on us, praise God. He's still chipping away the rough edges. And there's a lot of rough edges to chip away at, at least in me. A lot of the old man, the flesh, to be chipped away. And so he brings circumstances and life situations to bear in our life to do just that. So that we are conformed to the image of Christ. And so we see these three things in Genesis chapter 43. First of all, we see Jesus in this chapter. Or at least we see him pointed to. Dimly as in a mirror. Uh, uh, an, an incomplete shadow, but a shadow nonetheless of the Redeemer to come. And in seeing that, we're reminded of the why of this whole story. Because God is graciously working out His plan of redemption to rescue lost sinners like you and I. May we embrace Him as our Redeemer. What a joy to see Jesus on the pages of Genesis. And realize it all points to the cross. Secondly, we see the faith of Jacob. Trusting in the sovereignty of God and expressing that trust through prayer. Asking God to move and asking God to act on his behalf. All the while, trusting that his ways are best. And then lastly, we see that just as God was using life circumstances to do heart work on the brothers, so God uses similar life circumstances to do heart work on us. Praise Him for His work in sanctifying you through those things and through those times, conforming you to the image of Christ so that God would be glorified in your life.
Let us praise him for that. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you so much for this story and how, first of all, it points to you. It reminds us of why we even have this story. Because in your divine wisdom, you sought to redeem sinners to yourself, to rescue for yourself your people who would be rescued from worshiping themselves and restored to worshiping you. God, those of us that are in this room, we're reminded of that. We're reminded of your miraculous work of grace in our lives and how you remade us by giving us new life in Christ and you remade us to be worshipers. We want to worship you every moment of the day with every breath that you put in our lungs until you bring us home and make that worship complete, free from the presence of sin. But Lord, there are those in this room, there are those downstairs, there are those in our homes and neighborhoods and workplaces who don't have the hope, that living hope of being reconciled to you, the God who made them for your own glory. God, we pray that, Lord, through the songs that we sang earlier, through the celebration of the Lord's Supper table, and even through your word this morning, that the good news of the gospel has become abundantly clear to that person, and that they recognize that their sin separates them from you, both in this life and in the life to the come, and that they have no hope of bridging that gap save the finished work of Christ on the cross. We ask, Father, that you would lead them to faith right now, not by walking an aisle, not by marking a card, but simply by them in the quietness of where they are, expressing saving faith, trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross as their only hope, turning away from their sin and their self-reliance and their self-rule and turning to Jesus Christ and his rightful place of ruling them in their lives. Lead them across the line of faith. Lord, give them new life in you so that you might remake them into your worshiper so that they too have the hope of heaven and the privilege of sharing that gospel news until you bring us home. Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption. And we're thankful that we see it even on the pages of the Old Testament as we read this morning. May we live in light of that gospel. May we live as changed men and women who have been given a new heart, a heart that is soft to the things of God, a heart that loves, a heart that is bold to proclaim and a heart that longs to be reunited with you face to face. Until then, Lord, keep us faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.